All right. The last two weeks we've been talking about uh, evidences for the existence of God. And uh, the week before last, we started off with the cosmological argument, that is, the argument from cause and effect. That is, we are the effect. We're here. This known universe is here. What was the cause? And we spent some time talking about the uh, cause and effect argument for the existence of God. Last week, we spent a little bit more time along the same lines, still on the existence of God, but we used the teleological argument. Um, and uh, looking at that as far as the argument from design, okay, uh, Peggy and I were talking about this in the office today about how it is that um, a lot of times when you hear people that are talking about um, uh, from an atheistic point of view, they'll say, well, Mother Nature created this, and they'll move on and talk about the principle or whatever it is that they see in nature, but they never really, it never really registers that here we're attributing something to creating uh, this particular aspect of, of whatever's going on. But we do see design in nature, and where there is design in nature, there must be, by necessity, a designer. That's the teleological argument for the existence of God. We spent a little bit more time talking about the anthropic principle. Remember the word anthropos is the Greek word for man. And the principle that we are tailor-made, or the, excuse me, this world and all that's in it, the universe, the way that the earth revolves around the sun, uh, everything that's uh, here is tailor-made to cater to life and life continuing uh, until, uh, well, continuing, uh, um, what's the word, continuously. Um, that's not the word I'm looking for, but you understand what I'm saying. We spent some time looking at the anthropic principle. We talked about a little bit about the moral argument of man, how it is that above all other uh, created beings, about all other um, living things, man has a within him a moral ought, a sense of what's right and wrong, and to violate the wrong um, might be characterized in some respects, depending on the wrong, uh, uh, objective. How do we know it's wrong to kill? Well, we just know it. Um, but at the same time, believe it or not, it was... Um, based upon the trial after World War II that uh, a lot of people started looking at the Nazis and looking at what it was that was uh, uh, done in the name of fascism and saying that is morally wrong about how they murdered, uh, well, six and a half million Jews. And people could look at that and they could say, we know that's wrong. Well, how do you know that's wrong? For them, it was right. But morally wrong means that there's something that's within each one of us that says, here is a standard or here is a, a code of behavior that I need to be respectful of somebody else's life. And whenever that gets skewed, well, we have a place for those people. And, and that's, uh, that's prison a lot of times. But if there's something outside of me that determines right and wrong, that also means that you and I are accountable to something, doesn't it? It means that there's something to which we must answer. And so the question is, if we look at this world and all that's in it, as we have in the last two weeks, and said... We know that there is a creator. We see the evidence that there's an existence of a being superior to and also um, apart from uh, that is not of the same material as this universe. Then has that being made a revelation of himself to mankind? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. What does that being want us to do? I.e., what does God want us to do? And that's the reason why we want to take a look this evening, especially at the inspiration of the Bible, because if there is a God and he wants something of me, can I know with certainty that this book that I have open in front of me this evening is from him? And the answer is yes, I can. I was at a place this weekend that um, 
there was some parents that uh, were dealing with a uh, 20-year-old young lady. And as she's grown older, one of the things she's began to say, say and do is post uh, things on social media, uh, saying things that the Bible's no different than a Harry Potter, Potter novel. And of course, the parents, being good, uh, good Christian parents, are concerned about this. They say, what in the world can be done? And the answer is, is that we need to spend some more time, especially in Christian evidences, to look at and just not take for granted the fact that the Bible is from God. But how do we know the Bible is from God? And so for a young woman like that, I recommended um, looking at some apologetic type of things, uh, spending time in the home, opening up uh, the Word of God, and then opening up some, uh, um, some uh, good apologetic books to really uh, firm, uh, firm this young lady up in the faith to look at and say that I can know for certain that the Bible is unlike uh, a series of mythology or a series of um, uh, fictional novels like Harry Potter is. All right. So as we look at inspiration this evening, I want to start off at this point and say that the Bible claims inspiration. <coughs> the Bible claims inspiration. What is inspiration? Inspiration is simply this, and this is a first blank on your sheet if you're interested in filling it in. Inspiration is that God exerts a divine influence over a writer so that the end product is as exactly as God intended it to be. God exerts a divine influence over a writer so that the end product is exactly as God intended it to be. There is no more important question in life as to whether or not it exists, but there is another question equally crucial which demands our attention. Has he spoken to man? Has he communicated to us? Is there any word from God? And what the Bible says is that, yes, absolutely, God has, uh, God has um, spoken to man. God requires something of us. And looking at it is how did he inspire these men to write exactly what it was that he wanted? The Bible claims to be from God, and the entire Christian faith rests upon the truthfulness of this claim. All right? And so the question is, is, is that claim true? Can we know it's true? Is there evidence to support it? If it's not the Word of God, then we can rightfully discard this book as a, a work of fiction, just like Harry Potter, as that young lady said. If it's not, in fact, the word of God, it is the greatest fraud ever perpetuated upon mankind and indeed the history of the world. The Bible's all-time number one bestseller, and that's all the way across the board. There is no book that equals the popularity and the widespread sales <coughs> of this book. But on the other hand, if it is the word of God, then it is the supreme authority. And what it says about God, and man and human destiny and heaven and hell, if all those things are true, then we dare not ignore it. And brothers and sisters, it's not a not a decision and not a issue which we can dismiss lightly. Uh, it's the epitome of folly not to give ourselves fully to investigating the truthfulness of the Bible's claim to be the voice uh, of God speaking to us. And God inspiring human writers to write down things that he would want for uh, humanity to be accountable to. <coughs> Excuse me. There was a time not too long ago in our history, believe it or not, when most people believed to be the Bible to be of divine origin. Really what's happened in the past century, and especially in the last 50 years, that has changed dramatically. No longer can we, can we cite the Bible uh, and take for granted the average person is going to accept that it is from God. Now we find ourselves having to convince people first that the Bible's true. Even 
those people that we believe or that profess to be Christians, there is an appalling lack of conviction over the truthfulness of the Bible. Um, you know, surveys conducted in recent years talk about rampant evidence of belief from professors and theological students, even at uh, advanced denominational schools, right down to the man of the pew who openly questions or denies the inherency of Scripture, whether we can know what the words are given from God. <coughs> um, within the ranks of modernism and agnosticism and attacks against the Bible from within, even the church. Years ago, I'm told that J.W. McGarvey was one that rallied the people and led the fight against those trends, but they still continue to this day. Um, several years ago, there was an ACU professor named Carl Ar uh, Carol Arsborn who wrote a, a work called The Peaceable Kingdom. And he, uh, he called into question the integrity of the Bible and denying and ridiculing the idea of verbal inspiration. And in fact, he just goes on to reject plain Bible teaching. That's somebody in a, um, a school that... In, later or earlier years was associated with the churches of christ i had a conversation with a brother of mine uh, that um told me that uh, his children went to harding and they're in harding uh they had to argue with the dean across the desk about the six literal days of creation about whether or not those are six literal days and we assume sometimes and let me drop this off as we're flying over we assume sometimes that when we send our kids off to college that they're going to be okay because well, it's a school associated with the church. That's not necessarily the truth anymore. What you need to do is help your children have their own faith and have their own convictions settled so that it is that when they go off to school, they know that there's going to be assaults made upon them, and they know they need to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks them the reason for the hope that's within them, 1 Peter 3.15, our key verse. Otherwise, it is that we send our kids out, and if their faith is unsure, what's going to happen is, is that those foundations may have the, uh, may become shaken. We don't want that. You know, too often our young people are raised in the church and taught that the Bible's true and expected to assume that it's true, but never taught how we know that it's true. The Bible's claim of inspiration. When we say the Bible's inspired, we don't use that word in a way that one might speak of the words of Shakespeare or Milton or Poe or a work of art or a piece of music being profound and lofty. In fact, when we're talking about inspiration, we want to go to a particular place in Scripture to talk about this. Flip over to 2, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the go-to verse for talking about the inspiration of Scripture. That's a great one to talk about and a great one to go to and uh, certainly one for you to memorize if you're uh, so inclined. You'd be well served if you did. <coughs> Just look at the first part of verse 16. It says, all Scripture is, in New King James, given by inspiration of God. Just looking at those words there, couple of them that are interesting to us that we want to pay attention to. The word pasa in Greek is the word for all, every, everyone. The word graphe is the word that uh, we write with. It's scripture, okay? So every scripture or every word is divinely given writing. And the word for inspiration of God is a compound Greek word, theo and neustos. The word theo, it has to do with God. It's God. Neustos, breathe. We talk about things that are pneumatic, things that are spirited, and things that are moving, okay? All Scripture is God-breathed. Just the same way as if God were speaking these words, there's a, 
uh, inspiration of them that comes about. And what you're talking about is uh, uh, the supernatural process whereby the Holy Spirit influenced and guided man to record the words of God to make known God's will to man. Just what we said as far as the, uh, the inspiration um, definition is. It is to say that the words of the original manuscripts of the Bible and accurate copies and translations of them are the words of God, the recorded words of God. So we mean more than just the Bible's inspiring or the Bible's profound in thought or uh, thought-provoking. It's a masterpiece of literature. What we're talking about is a claim that it is 100% God's word. More than just inspired, what we want to understand about the Bible claims of inspiration is is that the Bible itself claims to be verbally inspired. Verbally inspired. By verbal, we mean that the very words themselves, not just the thoughts uh, or the concepts were given by God. God didn't speak to Paul, the apostle, and tell the apostle to write about justification by faith and then just simply leave it up to Paul as to how to fill in the blanks about how to write about faith. What people do is they'll say that that's kind of the way that God did it. Um, God gave just kind of the general principle from God, but left it up to the individual as to how to express that. We've got to reject that. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why in just a moment. But we believe that word for word, God spoke it and added to it just the way that he wanted it to be. God gave him the very words. <laughs> a couple verses for us to look at. We're going to be turning just a little bit this evening. I'd invite you to do that with me, please. We're going to start off in second, or excuse me, Exodus 20 and verse 1. Exodus 20 and verse 1. <clears throat> You'll recognize this. We've been going through the Ten Commandments on Sunday evenings, slowly but surely. And as Moses is up there on Sinai and he's receiving a law from God, and as it is, the people are hearing God speak this. Note how Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1 begins. It says, and God spoke all these words, saying, what is that? That's the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Here is Moses dutifully writing down everything that God talked about and everything that God told his people in just the way that God wanted it to be told. The Bible claims verbal inspiration. Flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. As David records his last words, or his last words are recorded, some believe that Samuel is the one that actually did this, but these are the last words of David. Uh, Thus says David, the son of Jesse, the man raised up on high, the anointed God, uh, uh, the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the God of Israel, or the rock of Israel spoke to me. Okay, David is not just saying he gave me a thought and then just let me carry away with whatever it was that I, I felt like writing down. Here's God saying, or here's David saying, God spoke to me and told me these words and spoke to me in this way. Take a look at Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9. Jeremiah 1 verse 9. As Jeremiah the prophet received his commission from God. You read that in uh, Jeremiah 1, you you know the suffering, the difficulty that he uh, that he endured for the rest of his life. <coughs> uh, 
as Jeremiah received his commission. Verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. See, this day I have set you over the nations, over the kingdoms, to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Here's Jeremiah speaking the word of God faithfully. Everything that God told him, uh, Jeremiah had on his lips. And everything that he said, Jeremiah said, was the word of the Lord and came from the word of the Lord. And in that respect, it was that he was over kingdoms. It was that uh, his words were going to cause um, the Babylonians to come in and destroy Jerusalem. By his words, uh, we're going to be the, the destruction of, of God's people because of their sins and their idolatry. There was going to stop it if these people continued to go down the sinful, idolatrous path that they had chosen for themselves. But was it Jeremiah's words? Well, it was the word that God put on his tongue, the message to speak to Israel. And then as he recorded those things by inspiration, uh, we have them here recorded for each one of us. All right? And so you get the understanding that here it is, as verbal inspiration. Take a look just for a moment uh, as we move along at the attitude of Jesus and the New Testament writers as they talked about uh, what was important about the Old Testament writings, and especially about the New Testament. We'll get to that in just a moment. Flip over to Matthew 22. We'll look at a couple of them from Matthew here. Matthew chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. I'm assuming y'all are already there. I can't hear many pages turning, but uh, I'm kind of stopped up this evening. So, uh, Verse 31, Jesus speaking to the, uh, the, the Sadducees. Jesus says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What Jesus is doing here in this instance is he's basing and appealing his argument about the resurrection from the dead on a simple word. God was not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Does that word make a difference? Yes, no, maybe so. Yes, it does. Why? Because God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And by Jesus pointing to this verse here from Exodus chapter 3 and saying, God says, I am the God of the Abraham, uh, the God of Isaac and of Jacob. God's saying, these are, I'm the, I'm the living God. I'm the God of these men who uh, their spirits still live on. Um, look down further in the context of verses 43 and 44. <clears throat> Again, <laughs> they have their opportunity to question Jesus, and Jesus turns it around towards the end of this discussion until it was that verse 46 says they weren't able to answer him. And from that time on, there wasn't anybody that was going to ask him anything else. But as he, Jesus uh, poses this question in verse 42, what do you think about the son of uh, the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he said the son of David. He said to him, how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus appeals to, again, a specific word, Lord. It wasn't that David had the thought in his head and just kind of put it down and, and the Pharisees could just dismiss it and say, well, you know, David was just speaking on his own. He was putting into context uh, the Lord's words as, as the Lord spoke. They understood that every single word was important and every single word was inspired. It wasn't a question in that, in that context. 
one that you're probably a little more familiar with. Flip back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law, law, uh, excuse me, the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I, assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, this helps me a little bit if I know what a jot is and what a tittle is. If you're talking about a jot, you're talking about the smallest human, or excuse me, the smallest Hebrew letter. If you're talking about a tittle, you're talking about the tiniest projection of the Hebrew characters, the, tiny, the little breath marks or the little um, accent marks. So you've got the smallest letter and you've got the smallest accent. Is every word important? The answer is yes, absolutely. We have an understanding that these things that he's talking about, the tiniest of these things are important, but they're just as God wanted it. It's not Jesus saying it's just the spirit of the text that needs to be fulfilled. It's every single thing in the text. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. As Peter is transitioning from putting a, Christians into remembrance of everything that they've talked about, and he's talked about, and, and wanting them to grow the way it is that they ought to grow, he's about to start talking about false teachers there in chapter 2. But as he does that, look at how he transitions verse 20. He says, knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is out of any private interpretation. That may be, that's the, uh, the New King James, yours may say origin. That's probably a better, uh, better rendering of that. It's not out of any private origin. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. How does this happen? I don't know. I don't know. I've mentioned that the best example that I've ever heard about this, and I think I've, I've mentioned it in Bible class before, is um, the idea of an ox cart. You've got a yoke of oxen that are there, and they're pulling this cart behind them, and they do it day in, day out, day in, day out. And, and so the man that's sitting up there with the reins, he just has to um, maybe every now and again just kind of gently tug at the oxen. But the oxen know the way that it is that they go every single day because they've, uh, there's a rut that's carved out. And as it is, as the Holy Spirit is guiding this man, and so he's writing down everything just as God wanted it to be. It is that this man is writing down and, and uh, being inspired by God to write these things down. That's the claim of the Bible. And that it, he got every single word right. Okay? So that's the idea of verbal inspiration. Questions or comments about that? We know that the New Testament or the Old Testament claims inspiration. What about the New Testament? Let's look at just a couple of these before we uh, leave this point. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's a good place to go to talk about this. As Paul's talking about uh, gospel preaching and talking about how the message came. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 9 through 13. 9 through 13. You can write down all of these and go back and look at them later, but uh, for our purposes, we're just going to look at uh, one or two of these. 
1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 13. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God prepared for those who love him. All right? I've got to keep that in context. And I look at it and I say, verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except for the spirit of, uh, of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man wisdom teaches, but in which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Here's the thing. I can look at you, and I can suppose you're thinking all sorts of things about me this evening, or you're thinking all sorts of things, and your mind is staying completely engaged in the lesson. But do I really know that? Can I ever know exactly what you're thinking? No. And just like you can't ever know exactly what it is that I'm thinking, and we get a lot of trouble time sometimes saying, well, he slighted me because he just he hates me or something like that. And we imagine things about other people that may or may not be true. But the only truth is, is that you're never going to know what's in my mind until I open my mouth and I tell you. Is that right? How in the world would we ever have known God's mind if it hadn't been that the Spirit revealed those things to us? That's the point Paul's making here, is to say that the Spirit who searches the mind of God, who knows the deep things of God, has revealed them to us. And thus Paul is saying, thus we speak. We're telling you exactly what the Spirit is telling us about well, in context, how the Corinthian church ought to behave, about the ways that it is that they're uh, messing things up in the church and about the ways that they failed and about how they're dividing and how they're doing all those things. The Spirit told Paul to write this letter, and Paul wrote it down exactly as the Spirit wanted it written. Does that make sense? All right, we, we track it pretty well. One more, take a look at Revelation chapter 1. Often studied, often misunderstood book in the book of Revelation. But as I look at this, at the very opening chapters, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Chapters 1, verse 1 and 2. You can follow the chain of command all the way from the top down to how the message has been transmitted. And you might circle these in the first, uh, first couple of verses about how inspiration works or how uh, transmission the message works. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing, the unveiling of something Jesus is doing or showing John, uh, which God gave him. Who's the him? Well, uh, the God gave him. Who's the only him that we've talked about so far? It's Jesus Christ. Yes. God gave Jesus, Jesus Christ, to show his earthly servants. Now, who are we talking about, uh, Morris? Now we're talking about John. Yes. Things which must shortly take place. How shortly? This was written in the first century. We're talking 2,000 years later, whenever we've got America 2021, 2020 almost. Shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw. As John is receiving this vision, again, I don't know how it happened. I don't know if John found himself a nice little rock there on Patmos and he was just jotting as fast as he could, seeing this vision unfold in front of him, this divine drama. But we know that 
God gave this vision to Jesus. Jesus gave it to his angel to come down and show John exactly the way it was that the, uh, everything from this point, which was going to shortly take place. Again, in John writing those things down, we're talking about the verbal inspiration of the Bible. It's not just that. What we believe also is we've got to believe the verbal inspiration, but also what we call the plenary inspiration. The plenary inspiration. That is a fancy word that just means not part of it, but all of it. All inspired. There are people today, and a lot of them are in positions of leadership and positions of scholarship and positions of uh, teaching that will believe that it's just simply merely parts of the Bible that are inspired. There are some who only want to accept like, the theological themes of the Bible as inspired, but dismiss maybe the portions of the Bible that they disagree with. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. <laughs> the people you're going to go out are going to want to try and tell you which parts of the Bible you can trust and which parts of the Bible you can't trust. We've, told we can't ex we've been told we can't accept the miracles of Jesus, or what to believe about these incredible events, like a serpent speaking to Eve, and Noah in the ark, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or Jericho's walls falling down, or Jonah in the belly of the great fish. And I'll look at these things and say, no, those are just allegory. Those are just mythology. Somebody inserted those things in there to make a powerful Hebrew point, but they're not real. They were never real, and you can't trust those parts where it just gets a little bit incredible. And in fact, it's a common for people to profess to believe the Bible as the word of God until, in some instances, they're confronted with parts of it that are, well, unpalatable to them. Well, there was a woman on national television that was uh, making a statement saying she believed the Bible, um, but that everything that Paul said couldn't be taken literally, such as what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about uh, women being in subjection to men. And uh, they believed that Paul was a, a chauvinist and that um, he suppressed women's rights. And so all of that stuff that Paul wrote, you can't trust it. And you can't, uh, you can't believe that it was inspired. It was just inserting his opinion into a divine book. There was a church I know of that put up a sign out in front. They had one of those movable marquees and and one Sunday, uh, one week, they just put out the uh, homosexuals shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And those people burned down their sign. Somebody came along and set the sign on fire and burned it down. And there's a, there were a lot of people that came and protested, and they objected on biblical grounds. They said uh, they, they believed the Bible. The problem was is that when you opened up and showed them the passage where it said... You know, homosexuals are some that are not going to inherit the kingdom of God from a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Then they began to say, well, it's, it's, it's not completely all inspired. Or I've even heard preachers that have used every single passage where it mentions homosexuality and explained away how it is that all those things were cultural or how all those things were uh, just something for the time and and. You can't really look at those things and say that it was just uh, it, it was uh, an offense to God. It was just something that was cultural that was just displeasing to God at that time. Again, we can't let people, including our brethren, get away with confronting themselves, comforting themselves that they believe the Bible when they're dismissing it here and there and saying that the Bible doesn't, well, 
this part of the Bible doesn't suit them. They're not a whole lot different than what we see in Jeremiah 36. Flip over just for a moment to Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36, you have, might have I just said, Jehoiakim's penknife. You might understand. Jeremiah tells the scribe Baruch, if I'm remembering the story correctly, he tells the scribe Baruch that you're going to write this message from God, and then you're going to take it and hand it to the people. If you look at verse 16, it happens when these people that uh, got this message from Jeremiah, who passed it down through the scribe, when they'd heard all the words, they looked in fear from one another, and they said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king all these words. What they did was they said, Baruch, you and Jeremiah, go run and hide because you don't want to be around whenever the king uh, reads this scroll. Uh, verse 21, so the king sent Jehudi to bring the scroll and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king and all those who were uh, in the hearing of the princess who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in his winter house in the ninth month with the fire burning in the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of his servants who heard all of these words. Why would they tear their garments if it was just a message from man? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. But the proper response that these others that heard or read the scroll initially that said, We've got to tell the king about this. They had the right response with the right beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, verse 8. And you're looking at the fear that they had, but whenever it came time for the inspired word of God to be read to Jehoiakim, he took this little pen knife and he began to cut out the parts that he didn't agree with and cast them into the fire. There's a lot of people today that will do the exact same thing because they don't accept the plenary inspiration of the Bible. That is, every single word. Here's the thing that we've got to contend with. Brothers and sisters, if we don't accept every single word as being inspired of God, here's the problem. Where am I going to get the magic decoder ring that's going to be able to tell me which parts of the Bible are inspired or which parts aren't? Who are you going to trust to tell you which parts of your Bible you can trust or which parts you can't? Can we trust Steve? Steve looks like he's a pretty reliable guy. <laughs> Steve doesn't want it. What about Alan? Alan's been preaching gospel for four, over 40 years, right? Uh, can, can we trust Alan? Who do we give that power to to say, you can trust this passage of Scripture, but don't trust this passage of Scripture over here? Do you really want somebody to have that power over what it is that you believe about the Bible? What if they decide Acts chapter 2 is not a part of what was, well, inspired. It was just somebody's idea to just kind of, as a joke, write down Acts chapter 2 to um, introduce this thing that we call the church. What if somebody told you that's not inspired? What if somebody told you that heaven is not a real place because somebody just decided to make that up to make Christians feel good about where they're going? What if somebody told you that that's not somewhat something you can trust? You see, when we get rid of this idea of verbal, every word, plenary, the whole thing, inspiration, 
then what you're going to have to do is put your salvation's trust into some man or some person or maybe some board in order to try and set themselves up to tell you which parts of your Bible you can trust or which parts you can't. That is nowhere that we want to be as people. So here's the truth of the matter. Either your Bible 100% is verbally inerrant. That is, there's no in it. That is, you can completely trust it. Or it's not. If it's not, you can reject the whole thing. But if it is, you are responsible. You are accountable. And so am I. And so is every other person today. That's the only two choices that we have. And we look at the Bible and we've got to ask the question, is the Bible trustworthy? It claims to be. It claims to be every single word of a logical, infallible God. God cannot lie, Titus chapter 1, verse 2. And if we can trust him, then this book ought to stand the test of me hammering on it and opening it up and examining all of the evidence and all of the alleged contradictions and all the things that it says and have the Bible still continue to be the Bible, still continue to go right on there being truth. Does it do it? You see, the young lady that I talked to, or the, her parents that I talked to, who said it's no different than a Harry Potter novel. The reason why I recommended Christian Evidences is because she needs to be in this process. She needs to be there hammering on her Bible and looking at it and evaluating the evidence, but looking at it not from a skeptic point of view, as we talked about, not going in with her mind already made up, but going up with evidence already laid out to say, can I trust this? Can I rely on this? Carrie? And there's a lot of people that I know that are members of this congregation, that are members of the church, because they decided to go one day and ask hard questions of those men that decided more than what they were going to believe. And so it was that they would see a Bible doctrine somewhere in Scripture and say, okay, you're a leader in this denomination. Tell me why it is that we do this. And there were some, and I can give you names if you'd like, but that were just kind of brushed aside and said, oh, that's just what we always believe. Oh, we reject it just because... Nobody practices that anymore. Well, again, who are you talking about and who it is that, whose faith are you relying on? Somebody says, I see it in the Bible. I want to practice it like they did it in the Bible. And the answer ought to be, great, let's do that. Let's make sure in context what it is that they're doing is, uh, is you know, under the right covenant. And again, looking at things with the right interpretation, but also looking at it and just saying, whatever the Bible says, that's what we want to do. Uh, the attitude of Samuel from years ago is, speak, Lord, your servant hears. I want to be just a person that follows in New Testament Christianity something in simplicity. I don't want to do it just because my theology teacher or my preacher or my elders or my uh, you know, pastor or whatever it is they want to call it um, told me that that's what we need to do. Again, you're trusting in man more than you are trusting in what it is that the, has been uh, revealed to us. All right, we're going to stop there and put a peg in that. Thank you so much for your attention this evening, and I uh, hope this is helpful. You can hold on to this uh, sheet. We'll finish up with this next week, or continue on with it next week, and um, that's where we'll begin. So thank you all very much.